Good morning. If you have your Bibles, open to John chapter 5. And if you don't have a Bible then, and you want to follow along, please raise your hand and one of our men will get you a Bible so you can follow along and read along with us. And before we start, let's just open with a word of prayer and ask for the Lord's blessing over this time. God, we are lost without you. As the song says, we are desperate for you. Your word says, Jesus said that apart from him, we can do nothing. We could do nothing that is good, nothing that is pleasing in your eyes apart from Christ. We cannot please you unless we are reconciled to you. And we are not reconciled to you unless our faith is placed in Christ alone and his atoning sacrifice on the cross for us for the penalty or for our sins, that he took the penalty of our sins upon himself so that his righteousness would be placed upon us. And so we are indeed lost without you. And that is the whole point of the gospel that we believe in, is that we cannot be saved without help from you. And so we place our faith in that and bless our times. We now study your word. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Uh, we're simply taking off from where I last preached on in John chapter 5, where the man was healed at the pool of Bethesda by Jesus. And so in Matthew, uh, John chapter 5, and we'll be picking up in verse 15 today. And a quick recap of this man who was healed. Remember, he was healed on the Sabbath. So Jesus healed him on the Sabbath. And then when the Jews saw a problem, they saw a problem with this, because in their minds, this was breaking the Sabbath, that this man wasn't supposed to be up carrying his mat. And then he, they asked him, where is this man that healed you? Because now they're not so much mad at the man, but now they're mad at this mysterious man who told him that he could get up and walk and to carry his mat. And so now we're going to pick up where the story shifts, the focus shifts from the man who is healed to now it shifts over to Jesus. And so as we understand the shift that's going on in here in the story, uh, let's read verses 15. Uh, the 24 together. The man who was healed went away and told the Jews that it was Jesus who had made him well. For this reason, the Jews were persecuting Jesus because he was doing these things on the Sabbath. But he answered them, My father is working until now, and I myself am working. For this reason, therefore, the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him, because he was not only breaking the Sabbath, but also was calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. Therefore, Jesus answered and was saying to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, the Son, of, the son can do nothing of himself unless it is something that he sees the Father doing. For whatever he, the Father does, these things the Son also does in like manner. For the Father loves the Son and shows him all things that he himself is doing. And the Father will show him greater works than these, so that you will marvel. For just as the Father raises the dead and gives life to them, even so the Son also gives life to whom he wishes. For not even the Father judges anyone, but he has given all judgment to the Son, and so that all will honor the Son even as they honor the Father. He who does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent him. 
Truly, truly, I say to you, he who hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life and does not come into judgment, but has passed out of death into life. Let's go back to the beginning of this in verse 15 and 16. Now we see Jesus is now identified as the Sabbath breaker. Uh, they found the man they're looking for, the man who approved or actually told this man he could break the Sabbath in their minds by picking up his mat and walking. And so they really wanted to look for the man who was encouraging someone, another Jewish man to break the Sabbath because that was the man that they wanted to condemn. turns out now they found that man who is Jesus. So we see that in verse 15 and 16. He is now identified as he is the Sabbath breaker that they are looking for. And in verse 16 he says, For this reason the Jews are persecuting Jesus. And in some translations it might even further say that they were seeking to kill him because he was doing these things on the Sabbath. Now this is not the only time that Jesus had done this on the Sabbath, something like this that made the Jews upset, the, the Jewish leaders. Uh, in, in Luke 6 and 14, we see three other accounts where Jesus purposely did things on the Sabbath that the Jewish leaders would have considered to be work. And he challenged them. Jesus challenged them in their definitions of work. Now, the Jewish leaders, when they, when they were saying that Jesus broke their Sabbath laws, it wasn't breaking the law of Moses. It was breaking the oral traditions that the Jewish leaders had set up uh, uh, that was apart from the law of God. And so they had their 39 different categories of what qualified as work, what was work, what's not work, what are you allowed to do on the Sabbath, what you're not allowed to do on the Sabbath, because everyone would remember the time when the man was gathering sticks, and, and they caught him, and they asked Moses what they should do with him, and Moses asked the Lord, God, what should we do with this man? We caught him gathering sticks, and he was stoned to death. Now it's God's command. And so you would understand that the fear of breaking the Sabbath and Jesus and God said in Exodus 31, we gave the law to the to the Israelites. That in Exodus 31, he, he even uh, uh, plainly lays out those who break the Sabbath shall be put to death. So there is this a uh, real fear of not wanting to forsake the Lord's Sabbath. And this is one of the reasons why the nation of Israel was punished during the uh, when they were exiled. It was because. It says over and over again in the prophets, in Isaiah and Jeremiah, how often they, uh, they uh, profaned, that's the word, they profaned the Sabbath. And you'll see that word pop up time and time again. How angry God was that they never remembered the Sabbath, they profaned the Sabbath. And that was one of the most important things that God um, uh, was trying to emphasize to them. How important it is to have their day of rest to remember what God has done. So this is not just a little thing that Jesus is doing. He's, he's pretty much defying everything the Jewish leaders would call right and good, and he's showing them that he's allowed to do whatever he wants on the Sabbath because he is the Lord of the Sabbath, which he says uh, in the Gospel of Matthew, that he is the Lord of the Sabbath. So this is a very big issue. He's not subtle about it at all. He will then t say to them in other, circum in other instances in the Gospels, uh, before he does what he's about to do on the Sabbath, he says things like, "Is it uh, should we do good or evil on the Sabbath? And then they won't have an answer from because it's a rhetorical question. And then he goes on to heal someone. Or he'll ask them, if you guys had uh, a, a child or, or an ox that fell into a pit and you needed that ox to do work, was essentially what he's saying, would you... Would you not rescue that 
animal out of the pit because your livelihood is depending upon that animal doing work for you, even if it's the Sabbath? And they all knew the answer to that question. Of course they would rescue the animal out of the pit because their lives depended on it. Their livelihood depended on it, on that animal working for them. So he would ask these rhetorical questions to them that they knew the answers to. I think one of the questions is, what is the Sabbath? You know, especially nowadays, we wonder what the Sabbath is. And with more and more stores being open on Sundays and more and more people working on Sundays, uh, I think there's a lot of confusion as far as what is the Sabbath supposed to be. If we go back in Scripture, it all starts in Genesis chapter 2, where God has created, uh, he created all things in, in the six days. He, was, his, he, saw, he saw that his creation was complete, and on the seventh day he sanctified it, set it apart as holy, and he rested from his work. And then when he brings it back up in the law in the Ten Commandments and he, he reminds the Israelites time and time again, what is the Sabbath? What's its purpose? It always goes back to creation and remembering how God had created the world in six days and on the seventh day he rested in the same way he wanted the nation of Israel to rest from all their work on the seventh day. So Sabbath literally means rest. Uh, sabbaticals, when people go on sabbatical, it's literally taking a rest, right? That's all it means, the Sabbath. Take a Sabbath means to take a rest. But we see this in Scripture, how important it is to God. In, in Exodus 31, again, verse 13, he's, he tells one of the purposes for it, is so that you may know that I am the Lord who sanctifies you. And, and this is a reminder to me that as we uh, uh, look to this idea of resting from all our work, as God rested from his work of his creation in the first six days, as we rest from our work, we were reminded that God is ultimately the sustainer and provider in all things. That as we take a rest from our work, that if we wanted to, we, we could work all the time and make more money and, and gather up more for our savings or more for us to spend or more for vacation time. Uh, we could work seven days of the week and get more out of it in a lot of ways. But then the, the temptation is to think that we are the ones providing for ourselves. Well, another reminder to me in resting from our work is a reminder that, as God says, it is he who sanctifies. As we rest from our work, as, we, as I rest from my work on, a, day, on a, a specified day of the week, I'm reminded that it is not by my own works that I am saved but it's God who works out salvation in me through faith in Christ. There, isn't a lot of, there is a lot of importance in resting. You know, we, we see it as a weakness sometimes, uh, of suck it up and, and, uh, and just bowl through it. Uh, sometimes we see rest as a weakness, and some people just rest too much. <laughs> some people are just lazy. So we see this in the Sabbath. There is, a, there is a specific day. For them, it was the seventh day. We have a, a denomination called Seventh-day Adventists, which they will be very adamant in only gathering together for worship on Saturdays. And, and so there's a little confusion on what the Sabbath is today in the church age. And, and so one of the things that I think clarifies what the Sabbath is is clarifying the difference between the Sabbath and the Lord's Day. Uh, so obviously we're gathered together here on a Sunday morning. This has been happening for a long time in church history. Uh, it goes back to the tradition of when Jesus had risen from the dead. Uh, it would have been on that Sunday, on the first day. 
And, and so we see that in Scripture, they would have they gathered many times on what they had called the Lord's Day. And it's called the Lord's Day because it was remembering what God had done through the Lord, our Lord Jesus Christ, rising again on that first day after three days being in the grave. And so historically, that, that's kind of the purpose of us gathering for worship on Sundays. It's because it is the Lord's Day. We memorialize the first day as the day that the Lord had risen. The Sabbath is different. The Sabbath is about rest. The Lord's Day is about memorializing what God had done through Jesus Christ as Jesus would has risen from the grave. We rejoice in that. 1 Corinthians 15, in the, the last two chapters of 1 Corinthians, Paul writes solely about the importance of the resurrection of Jesus. Interestingly enough, in Revelation uh, 1, John actually reports that he received the vision on the Lord's Day. And so we know that at that time, they would have understood what that Lord's Day meant, and, and they, were, they were gathering together regularly on the first day, the day that the Lord had risen. And so there's a little bit of confusion. A lot of times people just assume that Sunday is a Sabbath. Well, it's not really the Sabbath, uh, it can be for many people. We'll go into that a little further. But uh, for a lot of people, it just works out for the Sabbath, for their Sabbath to be on the day that we worship on a Sunday. But it's important to distinguish the difference between the two. Sabbath means rest. The Lord's day is remembering what the Lord had done. So uh, not only are there differences, they do have a lot of things in common in Scripture. We see that throughout the Old Testament, uh, the, the Sabbath was also a day where they gathered together, assembled together for worship. Uh, there are things that the Sabbath and the Lord's Day have in common. One of those things is uh, the assembling of believers for worship. Uh, another thing that they have in common is that it should, God is still uh, should be the focus and the center of that day. Uh, not only should it be the center of that day, but everything we do in that day should draw us closer to God in remembering what he has done for us. So as the Israelites would have remembered what God had done in creating the world in six days and resting from his work, uh, we are, as Christians, we remember not only that, but even more so uh, what God has done for us through Jesus Christ. So we've, we think about the, the commonalities between the Lord's Day and the Sabbath. They, have, they really serve two different purposes. For some people, they're going to turn out to be the same day. Uh, for me as a pastor, uh, it's for me, it's different days. Uh, for me, as a, in, in ministry work, I, I believe that my Sabbath is, should be another day of the week. Uh, for me, it's Mondays. I take Mondays off. Uh, this is a day where I set aside, where I, I, I do my best not to look at emails or, or, or answer phone calls or anything like that. Of course, uh, now another thing about the Sabbath, as Jesus was saying, we never cease doing good. Right? So even on the Sabbath, we should still be doing that which is good and pleasing to the Lord. So even as a pastor, uh, do I still re- should I still read my Bible on, on my Sabbath? Absolutely. Should I still pray for people on my Sabbath? Absolutely. If someone is in dire need of help and they're in a crisis situation, should I go out and help them? Yeah, absolutely. Right. But my hope is, as a pastor in ministry, and this has been like this for quite some time, is once again... As God created the world in six days, he commands us to work six days. And so this means that I must be diligent in my ministry, in my work, for the other six days so that I can be better prepared for, to take my Sabbath. So 
it means I'm to work, we, as, as everyone, as we all have our jobs and we all have our responsibilities, we are to work hard for six days because that day of rest should be a day of rest. We shouldn't be trying to string things along so that we have something to do on every day. Um, uh, it's important to take our day of rest. I believe the principle of the Sabbath still applies, even though we're in, um, we're in Christ. We're not, we're not condemned under, under the law by any means. Uh, it doesn't have to be the seventh day. But I believe the principle still applies of the Sabbath that we should be taking a day a week to do nothing work-related, Nothing that where we're trying to earn more money or, or um, uh, do what we do in our livelihood. I believe that we should be uh, resting from our work on that day because we remember that God is our provider and sustain, sustainer in all things. There be conf- uh, could be confusion on the Sabbath. Are we allowed to do, do vacations? Are we allowed to skip church? Are we allowed to uh, play sports on those days? Uh, I think the, the overall answer is yes, we are allowed to. The question is, how much thought and prayer are we putting into? Are we regularly, um, uh, uh, are we regularly, not making that time for the Lord? You know, are we not putting any prayer or thought into uh, dedicating a day for the Lord, where we rest from things and we 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 make God the focus of that day? Uh, so I think a lot more prayer and and consideration needs to be done in how we keep our Sabbath. Uh, it's not so much, are we allowed to do this and are we not allowed to do that? But it's more about how much prayer are we putting into this? Are we making the Lord the focus and resting on his graces that day, recognizing that he is providing and sustaining us at all times? So there are differences, but there's also commonalities. Uh I think this could be difficult, you know, for uh, for those of you who, who have full-time jobs, um, uh, it's pretty easy to define what work is and what's not. But I think that there's a valid um, uh, valid considerations that have to be made for like stay-at-home parents and stay-at-home moms and dads. Uh, uh, we're in the homeschool realm in our family, and and what it means to take a rest. I think uh, to go along the lines of of more prayer and consideration should go into our Sabbath is uh, uh, the difficulty of those who, who stay at home, they're certainly working a lot. You know, they're, they're, just, they're providing for their families or take care of their families and kids. And I think more prayer and consideration could also go into what are the things that don't need to be done on the seventh day or on their Sabbath uh, for them to rest and remember that God is the provider and sustainer of all things. Um, but that's just another example. So this is, you know, this is rather important because the Jews, they were deceived in the thinking that they could perfectly keep the Sabbath. By making more and more rules about what not to do on the Sabbath, they were deceived in the thinking that they could actually keep the law of God perfectly. And so this is why it's so important to define what the Sabbath is and what the Lord's Day is, because uh, I think it's easy for us to fall in this trap of, well, I went to church today, so I, I remember the Sabbath. Or I watched a sermon today, so I remember the Sabbath. Or uh, I read my Bible where I prayed today, so I remember the Sabbath. And I think it's important to understand that it's so much more than that. In Isaiah 58, God says, Remembering the Sabbath is desisting from your ways, speaking your word, and desisting from your pleasures. In other words, you take yourself out of the center of your life, which is, should be all of our lives, but sp- specifically on that day, 
God is saying, this is what, we might, what it means to keep the Sabbath, is you're not doing what you want to do. You're not saying what you want to say, and you're not going the ways that you want to go, because you're not the center of the Sabbath. God is saying, I am the center of the Sabbath. That's the purpose of remembering the Sabbath. So we, where do we succeed where the Jews failed? I mean, the Jews thought that they really could keep the Sabbath perfectly. They really thought that they could keep the law of God perfectly and make it to the kingdom of heaven based on their righteousness because they were good enough. So how do we succeed where they failed? Because that's something that Jesus uh, accused them of time and time again, of them being self-righteous. I think it's recognizing that we will never perfectly keep the Sabbath. When we reflect on Jesus and his sinlessness and, and that he was perfect throughout his whole life, it means that even as a teenager, he kept the Sabbath perfectly. And we're going to see later on when he says, my father is working and I myself am working, that Jesus worked on the Sabbath. And we're going to see why, that's, why he could do that in a second. But I think it's remembering that we will always fall short we can never fully, perfectly focus on God uh, each and every time when we take our Sabbath or when we come here and gather for worship. There's always going to be distractions. There's always going to be uh, our own will involved and what we want, how we want to spend our day off, how we want to spend our weekends, or how how we want to spend our weeks. Uh, we will never perfectly keep the Sabbath and keep that fourth commandment. And we rest in the hope of Christ that Jesus perfectly kept the Sabbath and all the other commands his entire life. And because of that, he was the worthy sacrifice for our sins. He was fully man and fully God, and it's because of his deity, uh, uh, he was able to do so, that no, do something no full man could do without, uh, without being fully God. And so this is what we rest our hope in as Christians. It's not... I went to church today, and I prayed, and I had lunch with people afterwards. It's not doing this checklist uh, of things. It's, it's, it's more about keeping God at the center and always remembering that we constantly fail at keeping God at the center of our lives. But it's only through Christ that we could, we could accomplish anything good in God's eyes. This is what it means for Jesus to be the perfect Sabbath keeper. And I think it's important to remember that because he... Even as a kid, this is really hard to imagine because I know my kids, but even as a child, he only did the Father's will on the Sabbath and throughout his whole life. So we get in this next verse now. Uh, now that he's, he's identified as a Sabbath breaker, he answers them because they want to kill him because the penalty is death, as they were told. In the, in the law of Moses, he says, my father is working until now, and I myself am working. So in other words, he's saying, God is working, therefore I can work. And he's, he's using the word work, which he knows is going to make them more upset. God is working, and so am I. What are you going to do about it? And, and so the Jews had this understanding that, that they knew that God was always at work. If God really did rest from all he did, everything would cease to exist. God did not create things in a set-it-in-motion kind of way where God didn't just set things in motion where he was able to go on vacation and come back and things would still be running. God is involved in all his creation constantly, actively, and he's working out our salvation through us, uh, through Christ. And so he is always working. 
and even the Jews who have understood this. But now Jesus is saying that my father is working, therefore I am too. And he's throwing that word work right in their face. And the reason why Jesus could work on the Sabbath is because as God does all things at all times, he's always working, Jesus, being God, is also always at work. The Son is always doing the Father's will. Uh, We are to never cease from doing good or that which is pleasing to the Lord on the Sabbath. Well, guess what? Jesus never ceased to do that which is good and pleasing to the Lord. And so Jesus is saying that he has the authority he is equal with God, because, and therefore he is able to work on the Sabbath, and they can't do anything about it. And so this would have made them even more upset. And so now not only is he breaking the fourth commandment in their eyes, but now he's breaking the first commandment, which is what? You shall have no other gods, right? In the Shema, in Deuteronomy 6, he says, The Lord is, uh, hero Israel, the Lord is God, the Lord is one. And so it's really important to God Uh, for them to understand that he is the only God. And there's another distinction I think we need to make when we understand the first commandment is I think there's a lot of confusion in terms of uh, what are gods and then what are idols. Uh, Those are the first two commands. You shall have no other gods and you shall have no idols. I I think uh, we tend to use those things synonymously many times, but they're actually different. Uh, We could take a a guitar, for example. Um, Not only do I play guitar, but... uh, a guitar, it could be an idol, but it could also be a god. How? Well, if I were to believe that this guitar had some sort of magical, uh, well, we'll use Old Testament illustrations, had some sort of magical fertility powers, right? When we play this guitar, it makes my wife fertile so that we can have more children, right? I am attributing divine authority and divine powers to that guitar as if it was a god. Now, the guitar could also be an idol to where I might love that guitar so much that if anything were to ever happen to it, I would just, I would never be happy again. Or I wouldn't be happy until I replaced it with a new, better one. Or until it was just the way it was when I liked it, you know, before someone messed with it, right? Uh, that would be an idol. I'm not attributing any divine authority or divine powers to it, but it's an idol in the sense that I'm valuing the creation over the, over the creator. So the difference between having gods and idols is really just the, the, the difference of, of are we, what are we attributing divine authority and powers to? In, in that time, in the Old Testament, there would have been the god of Molech, which uh, uh, they would have sacrificed their, their firstborn child to this god in hopes that believing that by sacrificing their own firstborn child to this statue, that it would then uh, cause them to have more children in the future and be more blessed by doing so, by pleasing this god of Molech. Uh, they, most of the gods had, back then had to do with fertility. And, and so they would have the Asherah poles that they would worship, uh, hoping that would make them have more children. Uh, we know that the Egyptians had many gods. They, they had the rain god and the, the creator god and all these other gods. And what made God so upset is that people believed there was more than one divine authority in existence. So this is Jesus making himself equal to God is committing the highest form of blasphemy by saying that he has divine authority just as the Father does. And so those are Old Testament examples of other gods, but I think there's plenty of examples of gods today that we, even some, uh, even as Christians, it's easy to struggle with. Uh, there's one that I like to call the god of luck. 
uh, the God of luck, uh, says that it's by luck things happen. And, uh, and you know, even in, in watching sports and in loving sports, uh, I'll even use the phrase, what a lucky shot or lucky catch or lucky throw. And I'll, I'll even catch myself using it, even though I know I shouldn't. And the reason why is because by attributing things to luck, we are taking God's sovereignty out of that situation. It might not seem like a big deal to some, but ultimately, if we're going to worship God properly and we understand and we affirm his sovereignty in all things, then we know that there's no such thing as luck. We know that all things will work to the good of those who love him. And through God's sovereignty, he causes all things to work for his will. And, and so even things like saying that, that was luck, uh, I, I, call it, I like to call it the God of luck. There's horoscopes that uh, people would ascribe to that because this horoscope says this is your personality, therefore you have to be that personality. That's not godly at all. Uh, the, the horoscopes say this is how you are and this is how you're always going to be. What the Bible says is this is how you are, you're sinful, and guess what? God's going to make you into the likeness of Christ. So it's being conformed to the likeness of Christ that we are adhering to as Christians, uh, which is why I would always encourage Christians to stop reading horoscopes. Because there's nothing positive about it. It's counter to what, the, of, to what God wants for us. We're not to stay in this box of saying you're this kind of personality because you're born this month. And, and a lot of people take pride in that. But God says he's going to change us to how he wants us. There's another God, uh, the gods of spiritism. Tarot cards, palm readings, uh, Ouija boards, stuff like that. A lot of times uh, people see these things as harmless and just good fun. They try these things, but they are completely in, uh, completely against uh, godliness, that we are attributing divine authority to what a card says or to what some person says uh, who's reading our palms. Uh, it, it's stuff like that. These are other gods that still exist in our, in our world today. Um, in missions in other countries, there's still going to be the witch doctors and everything else who, who perform, uh, perform services to many tribes to where the gospel is being preached. And one of the biggest obstacles is, is these witch doctors in those tribes. Um, and, and so uh, there's another god of karma. Karma, I think, is another god that we have in this world because we, if we adhere to anything karma-related, uh, we are essentially saying that we could somehow control what's going to happen to us by what we do now. If I do lots of good things and I'm placing myself in good position for good things to happen to me, that's, a place, that's placing divine authority in our actions. These are some of the other gods that we worship today. And so there's even ways that we do what Jesus is doing here by making ourselves equal with God. Uh, There's plenty of ways that we try to make ourselves equal with God. One of them is by making promises to each other. Uh, You know, and James says, don't say that you're going to do this and that on this day. You say that is the Lord's will. Why? Because such, in, in James' words, such boasting is evil, and we sin in our arrogance. Why? Why is it evil? Why is it arrogant? Because we are, we are saying that we have somehow have control over what's going to happen on what day in our lives and when it's going to happen. And this could be a hard one. Uh, you know, we like to make promises to our kids. We want to promise uh, that we're going to go take this trip uh, to Disneyland or whatever it might be. You, you know, we, we like to make promises because it, 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 it communicates a desire of our heart, right? We make promises out of our love for one another. We want to promise good things to people when really we have no control over what's going to happen. Uh, w- w- counseling 101 says that you never tell someone 
it's going to be okay, right? Uh, It's something that you don't tell people as a counselor or as a good friend. Uh, It's one of those suggestions that they say you don't say. You you never say that it's going to be okay. Well, because you don't know if it's going to be okay. Or what does what does the term okay mean, right? How are they interpreting that okay, and how are you, how is that person using it when they say, "Don't worry, everything's gonna be fine." So even making promises is a way of us making ourselves to be equal with God, because uh, we're removing the sovereignty of God and placing it on ourselves, saying, "I promise this." One of the most damaging promises in relationships is, I don't know if you guys can guess it. I promise I will, what? Never do anything to hurt you, right? Can any, has anyone ever successfully held that promise to their loved ones? No, I didn't think so. See, we, we make ourselves be like God, even when we make promises. And it's a dangerous thing. Uh, and once again, uh, on face value, it doesn't seem like that big of a deal to make promises. Uh, but there are, I, I think there are a lot more biblical ways that we express the desires of our heart without stepping over this line of I, uh, I'm, I'm going to guarantee that this is going to happen for you. This is the commandment that Jesus is breaking, that they accuse him of breaking, as he's making himself equal to God. And just by all those examples, you could see just how easily we break this commandment as Christians, right? Even as Christians who adhere to God as one and our faith is in the Lord Jesus Christ, uh, even as Christians, we will continue to break this commandment of, of adhering to other gods, whether we're making ourselves equal to, to be equal with God in some ways or we adhere to, uh, we start dabbling in other things. And so even as Christians, we struggle to keep this commandment. And once again, it points to Christ, the perfect commandment keeper who can work on the Sabbath who can make himself equal to God because he is God and he is equal to God. The Son is equal to the Father. He's allowed to work on the Sabbath because he is equal to God. So to see just how easy it is to break these commandments, that's the whole point. That's the whole point of the commands in, in the first place. It's, it, it, and then the, naturally the question is, well, if we can't keep the commandments, then what's their purpose? Well, the purpose is so that we may know the holy nature of God and the sinful nature of our hearts. The purpose of the law wasn't so that we could prove that we could keep it. It was so that God could show us that we can't keep it. Jesus is claiming equality with God. And he's not arguing with them either. And later on, John, uh, they pick up stones in chapter 10. They pick up stones to stone Jesus. Uh, uh, and he says, well, what are you stoning me for? What are you going to stone me for? And they said, well, because you being a man, make yourself out to be God. Jesus didn't say, well, I didn't say that. No, Jesus led them to believe that because that's what Jesus wanted them to believe. God, Jesus was wanting that message to get across that he is equal with God. When he came on, came in on the triumphal entry, uh, entry and people were worshiping him essentially, and the Pharisees were telling him to make them stop, he said, well, if they stop, these rocks will cry out. So throughout Jesus' whole ministry, he wanted that message to get across loud and clear. So we see that Jesus is the perfect commandment keeper. The Jews are accusing him of breaking these commandments. Let's finish off this passage. He says, Truly, truly, I say to you, the Son can do nothing of himself. And this is where Jesus states his case for his equality with God. Once again, he's not arguing with their accusation. He's telling them why he's making this statement. 
The son can do nothing of himself unless it's something he sees a father doing. For whatever the father does, these things the son also does in like manner. For the father loves the son and shows him all things that he himself is doing. And the father will show him even greater works than these, so that you will marvel. For just as the father raises the dead and gives them life, even so the son gives life to whom he wishes. For not even the Father judges anyone, but he has given all judgment to the Son, so that all will honor the Son even as though, uh, even as they honor the Father. And he who does not honor the Son does not honor the Father. Once again, apart from Jesus, we can do nothing. We'll stop there. You know, we see four important qualities here in the, the relationship between the Son and the Father you know, we see that him and the son and the father are equal in their works. We see that the son and the father have both have authority over life and death. We see that the son and the father are equal in honor. And both son and the father need to be believed in for eternal life. That you can't reject the father and receive the son. You can't reject the son and receive the father and, and, and receive eternal life. They go together. Uh, I've made it a point in the last few weeks to talk to as many Jehovah's Witnesses as I could when I see them out and about. And the reason why I have to go out to them is because if they find out I'm a pastor, they won't come to me. And so I go out, and anytime I see them, I go up to them and approach them with questions, and, and we have a good conversation. We have very good conversations. But you know what hangs them up on the, the Christian position of Jesus is that we believe that he is God. And this is what separates uh, what, how we are saved and how Jehovah's Witnesses believe they are saved. That I, I really had to corner some of them on saying, I had to ask them, as a Christian who believes Jesus is God, do, are you concerned for my eternal salvation? And most of them didn't want to answer that question. They wanted to say things like, well, that's between you and God, or, or only God knows your heart. And I would tell them, no, this is my heart. I'm telling you my heart. <laughs> my heart says Jesus is God. How, what, do you, what is your response to that? And I, I, only a few guys would actually say and be honest with me, yes, they were concerned for my salvation because of my doctrine on who Jesus is. And I was able to reciprocate to them and say, well, I'm concerned for your salvation because of your doctrine on who Jesus is. And usually one of the defenses, uh, the accusations of, upon our view of who Jesus is, is the fact that the word Trinity is nowhere in the Bible. And a lot of people will, will say, well, it's not in the Bible. The Trinity is not in the Bible. Well, the word Trinity is not in the Bible. But we had to come up with a whole council because there were difficult things in Scripture that are clear in Scripture that we had to deal with and, rest, and wrestle with. And we had to come up with a term for it because there was a lot of confusion on the matter. That's what the Council of Nicaea was all about. And so if you ever hear that, that, uh, that accusation, you know, if you're a younger believer, a newer believer, or, or you've never uh, really thought about it, well, people will say, oh, well, you believe in the Trinity? Did you know the Trinity is not in the Bible? Uh, you say, yeah, the word Trinity is not in the Bible. But we see the triune relationship between Father, Son, and Spirit throughout Scripture. This is one of those places. Jehovah's Witnesses and Mormons, Muslims, they all have very different views of who Jesus is. And this is what separates the Christian faith. That no other view holds Jesus to be equal with God and to be God. This is why we minister to Mormons. This is why we minister to Muslims. This is why we minister to Jehovah's Witnesses. Because just loving Jesus is not enough. It's understanding what is it about Jesus that we love? 
Because that is what the deciding factor is. Last verse. Jesus tells people how to be saved. The common question that someone will have if they're not a believer, well, how can I be saved? Jesus tells us. He says, truly, truly, I say to you, he who hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life and does not come into judgment but is passed out of death into life. Interestingly enough, he says, my word, right? Uh, what do the prophets in the Old Testament say when they speak on behalf of God? They say, thus says the Lord, right? God says this. God told me to say this to you, right? Well, what does Jesus say? He says, my word. In the Sermon on the Mount, he says, he who hears my words and, and acts on them is like the wise man who built his house on the rock, right? Jesus says, it's my word. No other prophet could do that. Only Jesus can, because he's equal with God, and he is God in the flesh. He says, those who hear my word and believes the Father who sent me has eternal life. So how do you get saved? You come to an understanding of who Jesus is, and the fact that you cannot keep any of God's commands. Therefore, you, you and I, we both deserve eternal punishment for our sins, rightfully so. It's only because of the goodness of Jesus, who kept all the commands perfectly, that his goodness is placed upon us, so that we may be made good. That's what it means to believe and receive the word of Jesus. And he says, you will have eternal life and you will not come into judgment or condemnation or punishment, but you have now passed out of death into life. You are no longer a physically alive person who's spiritually dead. You're no longer that anymore. Now you're guaranteed to be spiritually alive even when you're physically dead. That's the hope that we have as Christians. You know, Jesus made it pretty clear uh, uh, the Bible makes it pretty clear of Jesus being the perfect commandment keeper. In 2 Corinthians, it's, uh, he says, He became sin who, what? Knew no sin, so that we might become the righteousness of God. Right? Romans 5, 19 talks about the obedience of one. Uh, through the obedience of one person, Jesus, many will be made righteous. Right? It's not our own righteousness, it's righteousness of Jesus. Philippians 2 talks about the obedience of Jesus, how he was obedient to the point of death on the cross. And that's something that we wholly rely on God for. Is We call it the perseverance of the saints. It's essentially that we rely upon God, that he will cause our faith to persevere even to the end, even to the point of death, because our faith is in Christ. It is not us trying to hold on to our faith with all our grit and all our might. It's God who, who we are in his hands, he holds us together, and he holds us in his, in his hands. And it is he who causes us to remain faithful to the point of death. Whether death is looming around the corner or death comes suddenly, it is God who sustains the believer's faith to the point of death. And lastly, I think uh, the main thing we want to get across in this is that there, it is impossible to be good apart from Christ. I think so many times even uh, this, this uh, belief that we can be good uh, seeps its way into even our Christian thinking, uh, that we fall in the same trap as the, as the Jews did, deceiving ourselves, thinking that we could somehow be good enough uh, to where we don't have to do certain things for the Lord. Um, I think there's some dangers of believing that we can be truly good. 
one of the dangers is, well, I could say that I am a good father, therefore I deserve to do absolutely nothing on my weekends because I work so hard during the week. I, I could say that because I'm a good husband, I deserve to go out and, and party with my guy friends uh, late at night because I'm such a good husband. Uh, see, there's a danger when we call ourselves good because then we, we think of liberties that we have because we are good. I am a good fill in the blank, whatever it is, therefore I deserve to do this. There's a danger there because when does it stop? And, and who is gauging what we can and cannot do because we are good? Who is the gauge or what is our gauge of if we are good or not? Are we, are we the uh, measuring stick for if we are good or are we, or, uh, are we counting other people to say that we're good, uh, to leave us uh, fluffy comments on Facebook or whatever it might be, and we say, oh, yeah, I am a good person because all these people like me. There's dangers to being deceived into thinking that we can be good without Christ. What makes a person bad? That's another question we'd have to confront. If we're going to call someone good, well, what, what makes them bad? And what, if they do that thing and they become a bad person, well, can they do something to become a good person again? And you see the difficulty. If we are the judges of who's good and who's bad, then we have to decide, well, what makes them bad? Well, what makes them good again? But what if they do this? Are they bad again? Or, or are they half good? Are they partly good? This is the troubles that we run into in our sinful nature by trying to say what, someone is good and someone is bad, the good guys and the bad guys. We do not have that right to make those judgments. We are all sinners in need of Christ. That's the only authority that we have from Scripture. I think we see, uh, we see others, we, we set others up for failure. Um, celebrities uh, who, who play very convincing roles in a very heart-moving movie, and you just imagine that that's how that person must be all the time because they've sold you so well on that character. And so we see this all the time, where we will deem celebrities and actors who are really professional hypocrites, right? Uh, that's what I call them, is uh, hypocrites. They are professional liars, right? They're, they're paid to sell you on someone that they're really not. Uh, that's where the term comes from in Greek theater, is they are a hypocrite, uh, because they are putting a face on that's not really them. And so it, it's interesting that as a culture, we praise celebrities for being such good people when they are being paid to be professional hypocrites. And we, are, we can be deceived into thinking that the role that they play on film is the same role that they play in their life. And we call them good people because they're extremely talented. Marriages, we could set up our, our, uh, be set up for failure in marriages by thinking that um, uh, just considering ourselves good husbands or good wives or good spouses, uh, and, and we could... Um, puff ourselves up. Or if we puff up our spouse and keep calling them good and good and good all the time, we could be encouraging and loving, but we could set ourselves up for failure by thinking that they could do no wrong, right? They promised they would never hurt me, right? And then what happens when they do something that hurts us? You broke your promise, right? And so we could, we could even set others that we love up for failure by thinking that they could do no wrong or think, or, and, and calling them out as good, and sometimes we forget that they sin as well as we do. And we forget to extend the grace of God to them when they make mistakes. I think another danger is what happens when being good doesn't work. This is something that I had encountered this past Sunday 
a neighbor of mine uh, we went through something uh, very difficult uh, last Sunday morning, and he's been going through a tough time for a couple months now, and I'll spare all the details, but uh, he was on me and Mandy's heart all last Sunday sermon or service, and we couldn't wait to get home to minister to him. And this is someone that I've been preaching the gospel to several times. And the conversation I had with him that morning on my way to church at 7 and 6.30 in the morning, uh, his main complaint was he was being good and doing all the right things in his mind, and yet all these bad things continue to happen to him. And I shared the gospel with him, and he rejected gospel. And, you know, only God knows where he is now. Uh, I pray and I hope that he had come to faith and repentance because we came home to find out that he had taken his life while we were at church. But what he said to me was so powerful that I wish he would have had a better understanding of in the gospel is that he said that being good wasn't working for him. And we don't have to be, a person doesn't have to be to the point of suicide to experience the, 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 the letdown of trying to be good and have it not working out for you. I think there's many marriages that work out that way where they think that they did all the right things, yet their marriage still didn't work out. Uh, there's uh, people that say, think that they did all the right things, and yet they still got let go from their job, or they still got fired, or their, or their uh, entrepreneur uh, uh, adventure didn't work out, even though they feel like they did all the right things. This is another danger in thinking that we can be good apart from Christ. It's another way of, once again, making ourselves be like God. Is we are good, therefore these things should happen for us. So that's another question we have to confront in believing that we could be good. Is, well, what happens when good doesn't work? What happens as Christians that we are faithful to the Lord even though we're being persecuted uh, by our country? This is a question that most countries have to actually have to deal with on a much grander scale than we do. What happens when living faithfully to the Lord um, still results in very real pain and very real suffering for in our lives? And so our hope is not that being good is going to somehow work out for us in that way. Our hope is that because Christ is good, we will be made good regardless of what happens to us in this life. That's what it means to have saving faith in Jesus Christ, is that our faith is not placed in being good on our own. Our faith is placed in the fact that we are not good, but God is faithful to make us good because of Jesus. Let's pray. Lord, just thank you for your goodness and your faithfulness to us. As Christians, we rest on... We rest on Christ alone, through faith alone, through your grace alone. We understand the reason why you hate pride in man is because being prideful is essentially taking credit for what only you can do. We can, if we were to boast, we boast in the Lord, as it says. We cannot take credit for anything in our lives, but yet Jesus being equal with God, being being God in the flesh, he was able to take credit for everything. He was able to work on the Sabbath, something that we, as the Jews, could not do. But Jesus could, because he was perfect. He was a perfect commandment keeper, and we are the commandment breakers. 
And it's through Christ alone we are saved. So we thank you, Lord, for, for your provisions and sustaining us, uh, sustaining our faith, regardless of the kind of sufferings or the kind of uh, trials that we go through in this life. It is you that is faithful to us. And we thank you for that. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.